This is the first episode in our two-part finale for Beyond the Encounter that's all about peacemaking. This episode, we're talking about peace, how it's made, what is the process of learning like, and next episode, we'll talk to Border Encounter participants themselves. But today, for those of us who live in the interior of the United States, who have never perhaps crossed the bridge to Mexico, we're going to tell you a little bit about what it's like. And we want to caveat by saying that not everyone can do this process. Not everyone can cross the bridge to Mexico. It's quite a privilege to be able to go there and back. But we've also come to realize that this process is deeply symbolic both for what life is like in El Paso and also for what the peacemaking process is like. So we hope you'll join us and we hope that you'll learn some things along the way. How to walk to Mexico. First, in order to walk to Mexico, you have to decide what bridge you're taking. There are several, and so you choose which one will get you where you need to go. Once you get to the gate, you must pay the person at the booth 50 cents. And then, well, you, you cross. <laughs> Walking across the bridge takes about five minutes in total. There's usually a decent amount of people around you, all going this place and that. Some of them are going home, others going to visit family. Depending on the time of day, students may be walking back to Mexico after a full day of classes. Once you cross the cement canal, passing the golden shadows on the gently sloping concrete beneath your shuffling feet, you're there. You're in Mexico. Here, you look around and take notice. You notice the brick street and the hodgepodge of taxis lined upon it. You notice the taxi drivers easily leaning against their cars as people pop in and out of La Michoacana behind them. Vendors line the streets selling De La Rosas and Huaraches. This is most definitely a new place. With the skyline of the city behind you casting shadows on this new world, you look around at the people bustling through this busy street. If you begin to notice that the seemingly magical transportation you just experienced doesn't seem to be affecting anyone else as it is affecting you, then you're noticing one of the most fascinating parts of the El Paso Juarez metropolis. Essentially, they are one and the same. The people, the land, the air, the goods. It feels different to you, but to the people around you, this crossing is just another day in the life. On the way back, you pay a couple of pesos at the machine. You might have to buy a De La Rosa or two in order to get changed across. On the way back, there are a couple more stops you might have to make. At the middle of the bridge, they will check your passport to make sure you are authorized to enter. It might be here that you pause to consider where exactly you are. You might look out at the cement riverbed beneath you and contemplate all the significance of that riverbed how it has signified the divide between the two countries. You might remember hearing stories of migrants filling that riverbed, sleeping in tents, waiting to add their names to the list. You might wonder at the privilege that you have so easily crossing this bridge and how not everyone experiences the same ease. You might ponder the significance of this bridge, both for the people in El Paso, for the people coming to El Paso, and for the people in Juarez. Still, the crossing is normal for seemingly everyone else on the bridge. 
This might cause you to wonder at how this totally normal crossing from one country to the other forms the communities on either side of the border. Does the separation weigh heavy on their shoulders? Or do they rarely think of it? Are the stories we hear of violence and chaos accurate? How much does the wall actually affect life along the border? So I asked around. I asked people what they thought of their city, the bicultural, binational place that it is, where two supposedly different worlds collide. What they told me might be surprising to some of you. There, there's a characteristic that El Paso has that I don't think there's a uniqueness in there that a lot of places don't have. And it's, um, I, I fully credit that to it being a border city. Um, you know, we have the Texas influence, we have the Chicano influence, we have Mexico's influence, we have new Mexican influence, which is like a totally other, um, thing. Um, so it's, um, a little bit of everything that I, I think people overlook and don't understand. And it took me maybe 27 years to be like, oh, I actually really like it there and I want to go back. (laughs) If you could tell people that live outside of the border one thing about um, this land and El Paso, what would you tell them? I would have to say that El Paso's a really special place. Um, because we are a community of immigrants, um, we're a very loving community. You know, it's a place where you smile at a random stranger. It's a place where if you see your neighbor struggling, you try to help them out. Um, it's not a perfect place for sure. We have our faults, but I think that we're a place unlike many others. We've long learned to embrace the stranger in El Paso. And I think that that's what makes this place such a special place to live is that there are no strangers to us. Um, There are just new neighbors and new friends, new family, um, not strangers. She, Melissa, the executive director of one of the main legal providers here in El Paso, wasn't the only one who spoke about the way that their city has a special ability to welcome people. What is your favorite, or like what do you love about living in a bi-national city? We as a community, we don't like limit ourselves to think just as one way. And here in El Paso, like there's people, not only from Mexico, like, there are people from Argentina, from Cuba, from Honduras, Puerto Rico. Like, there's a lot of people that cross from Mexico that are not that are not from Mexico, and like they make uh, like a new culture here in El Paso. El Paso is a beautiful place. It is a welcoming place, and El Paso has been named continuously as one of the safest cities for a reason. Yeah, it's a warm place, it's a welcoming place, and um, we invite you to come and check it out for yourself. (laughs) And we're known as a sun city because it's always sunny here. (laughs) (laughs) 
All of these conversations made me wonder if El Paso is not really as violent and terrifying and conflict-ridden of a place that so many people make it out to be. I began to wonder if it was the feeling I had on the bridge, the transcendent crossing between two worlds so different yet so similar, that is more influential over the experiences here in El Paso. Maybe it's this bridge that creates this uniqueness creates a desire to welcome the stranger in their midst, creates, perhaps, something even peaceful. Tammy's story, and the stories of so many others here in El Paso, runs in stark contrast to what we normally hear about the border. Um, what does peace mean to you? What does peace mean to me? It means a lot of things. Um, peace, like with ourselves, with myself, or, you know, having peace with others, having peace at work, having, like, tranquility, you know, having that sense of comfort, that sense of, you know, hopefulness, the sense of, you know, achievement and, like, wholeness. That's what peace means to me. Um, not that, you know, I'm peaceful all the time, you know, but it's um, it's something that that I think that I think I have here, you know, in El Paso, and it's like it's peaceful, and that's why we just haven't left, you know. If we wouldn't like fulfill every aspect, you know. Um, I don't think we would be here. In Texas's borderlands, they feel they are besieged. Communities already are feeling the effects of the new president's order to halt border wall construction. The wall's presence has had a profound impact. Its legacy, though, remains border security along our southern border, including construction, continued construction of the border wall. Vowed to build a wall along Fiery the... Fiery debate over the wall. If you actually ever get this close to the border... Border wall. wall. A wall along the... Wall. I think it's because we talk about the walls and not the bridges. There's a lot of like five bridges to go to Juarez, but the most like closer to my house or to here is either Santa Fe Bridge or, or Lerdo Bridge or the Americas Bridge, but the Americas Bridge you need to take a car because it's kind of like 10 minutes drive. But I go to the Santa Fe, I pay 50 cents to go to cross, <laughs> and then like I cross, so, and then like, yeah you cross, <laughs> and then like you, you arrive to the
Here at Ibarra, we are fortunate to know and work with many people who have made it their life's work to create and facilitate peace among those who often do not understand each other. I spoke to these people to learn what they knew about the peacemaking process. They told me how they used in-between spaces, the places where power structures are challenged, where the land is neutral. So the desert is our classroom, it's neutral. It deals with uh, imbalance of power. It puts people in, in dynamic that breaks the dehumanization demonization process. And that is really key things. That the other person is human being. And one, one thing is that in the language we use, when I use immigrant, asylum, I generalize the American, that is dehumanizing language. They told me about the complexity in this process. Culture. And when you don't know people outside that culture, it's, it's really easy to just, you know, to have strong views and, and even be susceptible to the demonization of people who are different from you, who have different religious identities, different ethnic backgrounds, all that. And, and you see that, I think, in our country today, that we, you know, the more we silo ourselves into homogenous groups, uh, and left and right can do this, um, as among both. and so you see these blue and red maps, and there's these high concentrations. It's like we often don't really know or have relationship with people who are different from us in serious ways. And it, it, you know, it, it can be comfortable, and it also has a real cost to it. And part of the way we get out of some of this is, is again building relationships and then learning to do things together, pursue a common good together with people who are different from us. But but that's um, I think that our our work in taking people on these experiential learning journeys is is really important. Last thing I'll say, and it's a, it's a really great quote because it points to something else that's important about this kind of experience. Uh, a Supreme Court justice back from early in the 20th century, Oliver Wendell Holmes, said something like. Um, Simplicity, this side of complexity is pretty worthless, but simplicity on the other side of complexity is of great value. So it's not that there aren't simple things that work in some of these entrenched conflicts, but if you size it up too quickly, you've, you're, you're, you're going to get it wrong. And so we, that's what we, we take our people on a very complicated journey, not just to let them forever live and wallow in the complexity of it and imagine that there's nothing you can ever do because it's so complicated, but you have to be willing to go through the complexity to get to, the, to, the, to some sim simple answers. Another group runs a retreat center where they host people from all over the world. The goal of this organization, according to their website, is to create, quote, a place of love and acceptance to all people, irrespective of their background, beliefs, and faith, end quote. How do they do this, though? How do they find love and acceptance among people of entirely different cultures and different beliefs? When I asked them these questions, they told me this. So the word foreigner, we don't use it at all. So we don't, we don't know it. <laughs> um, when we say you are friends, it's different than when you say you are foreigner to me. And um, for our philosophy or our, uh, as our community philosophy, like who say that you are foreigner to me and I'm foreigner to you? So for me, this is the first step to already put people as a friends, not as enemies or put, not put people as uh, separate people to each other. So 
we call everyone friends. Uh, second, Anafora is welcome to everyone. So you can see on the table uh, ambassadors and people from uh, very poor families in the South, for example. You can see um, women, men, you can see uh, people from Sweden, people from uh, Norway, people from US, and all we eat together on one table. Mm. And this makes kind of um, cohesion between the different types of people. And as well, we, um, we open up uh, that people can share together their life not because they are ambassador or not because they are from Sweden or not because it's only sharing as a human being uh, together. And this makes people see common things, not to see what's separate. And this makes this peace in the society hmm. that, that we don't look for who, who we are is more to look as the human in the other person and the human myself. Um, as well, we don't ask people about uh, what, what is the profession? So we don't know. And finally, a woman working in post-apartheid reconciliation movements in South Africa told me this. Peace building has a lot to do with where we find ourselves, where we are located, where we choose um, to be present, how we choose to be present. So I guess that brings us back here to our location on the bridge, pondering at this experience of hovering between the United States and Mexico. It is this bridge that makes El Paso a place like what these peacemakers described, a land where a hybridity of place and identity inserts itself into the everyday experience of living here, precisely because of the way that the bridge interconnects the land. While those who have been here long lament the ways that the walls have restricted the flow of people, culture, family, and ideas, still the history of the proximity between El Paso and Juarez and the continued, albeit somewhat limited, intersection of the two cities defines this place. There's this concept within social theory called liminality. It means that there's a process we go through as humans where in order to move from one way of being to the next, we go through an unstructured, unfamiliar environment. Social theorists like Victor Turner and Arnold Van Gniep studied this phenomenon. These two theorists especially studied the way that the radical restructuring of people's roles in society and the places they engage in different rites of passage are essential for transformation to occur. Simply put, the places where our conceptions are challenged are the places where transformation happens. This liminality hugs the air in El Paso. It reaches into the very homes of the people who live there. Um, there's a term that I came across and I can't remember, it's not mine, but it's a wonderful term and I use it in my class. It's called uh, Mexico de Afuera. I don't know if you ever heard that term. Mm -hmm. Well, this term, um, Mexico de Afuera, um, and I, the translation is rough, it would be Mexico outside of Mexico, for the lack of a better term. This is one of the things that, and this is like, when you're, to your question of dissertation, 
as much as I want to hit a paradigm shift, I think that the the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, if there was a place to study identity, race, theory, I mean, um, this is the place to do it. But these, this type of borderland experience that, that you and I share, um, and granted, we have our own perspectives um, and all these things, that, which are all awesome. A lot of this stuff is actually taking place in an area, and I'm going to use where I come from, from Chicago. In Chicago, um, and I'll use myself as an example, we grew up in a household that is a Mexican household. So this is where the, this is how Mexico de Afuera was defined. You live in the United States in an American society dominated by everybody but you in terms of demographics and so forth. But your house is Mexico, is Mexico. Mm. The music, the food, the language, the customs, um, the fact that you say ma with an accent on the A, mm. even though people who are, who are not, who don't identify as Mexican-American use the same word. A friend of mine says, yeah, dude, but we put an accent on it when we say it. We say ma. True to form in Spanish, you have to use your accents. I remember growing up in Chicago and on Sundays, and everybody, this is where you see the bobblehead effect. On Sundays, mom woke you up, woke up early by turning the only Spanish language radio station on. It was blaring. You smelled pine salt. <laughs> and mm. you got up because she wouldn't say, hey, honey, wake up. She said, andale, andale, levántate. Come on, come on, get up. Go do this and go do that. And by 10 o'clock, you were done. Houses man like pine salt. And then all mm -hmm. of a sudden, you look on the stove. You had menudo, there were maybe tortillas, handmade, there were frijoles. So there's these smells, and I'm, and I'm a big foodie. Those were very much what you would find when you go back to Mexico and you visit Abuela. It's the same smell in my house. They're making chile. Your eyes are burning because mm -hmm. the house is all smelling like chile. But it's the same. So the Mexico de afuera, you're growing up, in a manner of speaking, in Mexico, even though you're in the United States, and some of my colleagues never been to Mexico because their parents were the last ones to leave or whatever. So even though they didn't go to Mexico, they feel very much Mexican. Here in Segundo Barrio, well, when I say here, meaning in El Paso, I don't live in Segundo Barrio, you have folks that were born and raised in the United States, again, by geopolitical definition, but they identify as Mexican because their household is Mexican. And so when they leave their house, they're, le they're leaving their house and their, their doorway, as a friend put it, is a threshold. That is their U.S.-Mexico border. Liminality clings to your breath as you stand atop the Franklin Mountains, gasping at the sprawling metropolis before you straining your eyes to find the line that you've been told should exist. But so he was kind of like, okay, where's Mexico? And I was like, how the hell am I supposed to know where is Mexico? Everything looks exactly the same. And so he showed us the X and he's like, that is Mexico. And I was like, that's it? Like that, that's what makes Mexico, Mexico? And he's like, yes. And I, so that was like intense, right? To even see like, what the heck are we talking about? It's the same land, it's the same air, it's the same resources, it's the freaking same people. I can't help but wonder what would happen if we changed the narrative. 
What if, instead of discussing divisive and conflict-ridden walls, the people of the United States chose to look to the people of El Paso for guidance? What if we learned from this binational, hybrid, liminal city about what it means to be human, to embrace the stranger? What if our media instead highlighted those leading the charge to create true immigration reform right from their community? The people of El Paso know, as they told you themselves, how to welcome the stranger. If their stories were the ones being heard, I can't help but wonder if we wouldn't have so much fear. If their experiences with their city, having to do far less with the walls and far more with the bridges, are the next step for our country as a whole. What if El Paso truly became the leading example of peacemaking that I know it could be? So maybe it's our turn to listen, to ask what's actually happening, to not blindly accept the horrible rhetoric we are told, to choose to see the complexity of El Paso and the border, choose to see the humanity of the people that live there and the people that pass through there, and instead step into the liminal space beyond the encounter. Next time on Beyond the Encounter, we talk to the people who have come and visited El Paso on our encounter trips. We hear what encountering the city in all its liminality has taught them. They stepped into that liminality, into that complexity and that unstructuring of what they thought they knew. Next time, we'll hear from them.